0: Very happy to finally have uh, Dana Sawyer. We've been trying to do this for a while. Uh, Dana is also a son of Maine and he is the, let me see if I get this right, he is emeritus professor of religion and philosophy uh, at the Maine College of Art. Did I get that right? That's right. That's right. Um, He's also taught for many, many years at my my former institution, Bangor Theological Seminary, and uh, been hearing his name for close to 30 years. So hmm. it's great to finally meet you. Likewise. <laughs> um, before we start, could you just give us a, a kind of a picture of of your work and, and maybe how it's um, you know pretty unique these days, especially. Okay, uh, <laughs> so I
1: uh, I was very interested in Hinduism and Buddhism back in the '70s, and uh, I got a letter from the. I, I graduated from Western Connecticut State University in Western philosophy, and I got a letter in the mail from the University of Hawaii saying that if i would switch to studying asian philosophy they would fly me out there and pay for it so <laughs> at that time i was digging clams in the town i grew up in millbridge maine and i thought oh free trip to hawaii even if i don't like being out there but uh, parallel with that letter was the fact that i had become interested i was reading krishnamurti and a lot of people that were popular in the mid 70s, early 70s. And uh, so I went and I finished a master's degree there, liked it, spent seven years in grad school at various places and uh, started studying a sect of Hindu swamis and was going to India to do field research, have been to India 18 times now. Uh, And I really enjoyed that work and was publishing some of that work. But when I turned 50, uh, 20 years ago, I kept thinking, I'm writing these little academic articles that um, probably 20 of my colleagues are reading, Uh, 15 of them understand the article, (laughs) and 12 of them disagree with me. And so I thought, okay, what would I write about if I really wanted to say something and if I wanted to reach a popular audience? And a thinker who had stayed with me my whole life was Aldous Huxley. So I pitched the idea to a publisher in New York of writing a biography of Aldous Huxley. Uh, There had already been an authorized biography of Huxley written and uh, by Sybil Bedford and that was like 700 pages long but what struck me when I read it was there was no attention to his spiritual life or his philosophical life which really was interesting because of the 50 books that Huxley published only 11 of them were novels Mm -hmm. and yet he's usually thought of only as a British novelist Mm -hmm. and so there was so much juicy material in the philosophical writing that I thought, okay, I'd like to write a biography really focused on his philosophical and spiritual growth. Um, Wrapping this little intro up, when I finished that, I was on a small book tour, and one of the places I was uh, speaking was uh, actually several places in Southern California. So Houston Smith, whom I had Uh, admired for years and years and years and met way back in the 70s when I was at the University of Hawaii, uh, invited me and my wife to dinner. And during that dinner, he said, if anybody were going to write my biography, I'd like the kind of treatment you gave Aldous Huxley.
0: Mm.
1: So that kind of went right over my head. But uh, (laughs) driving away that night in the car, my wife said, Did you catch that he just asked you to write his biography, his authorized biography?
0: That's wonderful. uh, Which I had. That's a great Uh, story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, uh, Aldous Huxley, Houston Smith, they have in common the perennial philosophy, as you know. And uh, so that's the world I've been really living in in the last 20 plus years is... uh, Aldous Huxley, Houston Smith, the perennial philosophy, various theories of
0: uh, mystical experience fit in there. And for the audience, can you just give us a a sense of what the perennial philosophy is? Oh, sure, sure.
1: Uh, One way to approach it is by saying that it's not a philosophy as people usually think of philosophy. People usually think of philosophy as a systemic philosophy, that you've created a system and we can follow logically the steps of your system and understand an ideological worldview that has an ethical component, an ontological component, all of that. The perennial philosophy isn't that. The perennial philosophy is the view that if we look across world mysticism, uh, specifically mystical experience, so visionary experience or various kinds of psi experience, precognition, telepathy, all these different things that we throw under this in this catch all category of mystical then uh, there is one experience that not always, but very often comes up where the mystic says that they have melted into or united with ultimate reality slash God slash the sacred. They've become one with the sacred Mm. uh, or absolute, if you will. And so Huxley did just that in a book called The Perennial Philosophy in 1945. He read very broadly across uh, mystical literature and said, This unitive mystical experience comes up very, very often. So it's one of the common experiences across the mystical literature, not the only one. There's no unio mystico. It's one of the experiences. In of the common experiences, it's one that uh, the majority of mystics also place a premium on. In other words, more than telepathy, which also we see across the mystical traditions, or prophecy, they uh, across the traditions a real premium is placed on this experience of oneness with the sacred. Uh, a Teresa of Avila kind of experience, a Shankara kind of experience, Mahayana Buddhist kind of absorption or jhana. Uh, there's so much to say there, as you you well sure. know. But so so anyway, the perennial philosophy is saying that this unitive mystical experience perennially rises in uh, the human psyche. Uh, because we have, perhaps it's latent, but an endemic ability to have this experience, this unit of mystical experience, in the same way that human beings have an innate capacity for aesthetic appreciation, a love of music, uh, love itself. We also, though it's latent in many people, have an ability to experience the ground of all being and melt into it. I hope that gives some idea. So the perennial philosophy is putting a premium not on rational linear discourse, though, though experience can be talked about, but the premium is placed on what Huxley called the unitive knowledge, the knowledge that's experiential. That people that come down off the mountain, if you will, who've had this unit of experience, will say to their community members, hey, this thing happened to me that's of extraordinary import. Uh, not only does it bring profound meaning to life, but it even has a therapeutic value in that I recognize that I'm a changed person now.
0: Mm-hmm. So just listening to you, it, it strikes me that, at least coming from Huxley, but I would imagine a lot of the perennialists would agree that there's definitely an implied um, uh, psychology and anthropology here, that, that this is part of the of what a human being is. And, and that it's, um, while universal might be too strong a word, but it's still across time and culture.
1: Yes. You know, I I said that the perennial philosophy isn't a philosophy, but it's also not a religion. And what I mean by that is there's no dogma in the perennial philosophy, at least as Huxley and Houston Smith presented it. Mm -hmm. Huxley talked about Uh, working hypotheses relative to that unit of mystical experience. Huxley even said that the greatest invention of the scientific revolution was actually the concept of a working hypothesis. We don't have to marry ourselves to a dogma or a specific rigid worldview. We can launch theories about the experience because in Huxley's estimation the experience is so profound that um, maybe it's beyond words right we can talk about it and we can launch theories about it but it may exceed our ability to conceptualize though it though we can experience it perhaps like love
0: mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Concept. i can't define it but i know it when i've experienced it exactly And uh, from their
1: perspective, we greatly underestimate the value of what you just said, that the experience and knowing it with the instrument of the human soul, uh, the human spirit, is profound. What a microscope doesn't reveal and a telescope doesn't reveal, the human heart can. That was the the view of not only Huxley, but of the
0: mystics themselves. That's beautiful. Um, this this constellation of ideas has a lot of resonance with people in recovery, especially in the 12-step world. Um, it's often not sophisticated and it's often kind of married to this I'm uh, um, spiritual but not religious ethos that we see so much now. But even though these ideas are popular with a lay lay readership, um, they've become somewhat unpopular in the academy. <laughs> Put it mildly. Um, and maybe talk about why that is. How can something have such a sort of um, intuitive appeal to Joe and Jane on the street and be so off-putting to academics? Well, that is a big question and a wonderful one. Uh, a,
1: A kind of terror of subjective experience, a kind of terror that if it is something that we are experiencing through the human instrument, then it's only subjective and differs dramatically from person to person, and somehow that invalidates it, is though uh, if you describe love differently than I do, differently than Harry, Dick, and Jane do, then love doesn't exist, because we described it differently. So there's a kind of terror of the relativity of that subjectivism. Uh, And then also, it's important to understand that we're, we're basically living in a new dark ages. And what I mean by that is the kind of dogmatic adherence to what in philosophy is defined as scientism, uh, the ideology of scientism. So what I mean by that is science is a method. It's a means of gaining a certain kind of information And that information is information that can be quantified, measured and weighed, et cetera. Uh, And we've loved that form of gaining information and knowledge so much because of its exactness uh, and quantifiability that we've tried to make it the exclusive way of knowing everything. So scientism is basically saying... Uh, to paraphrase Bertrand Russell, what science can't quantify, mankind can't know. Mm. So um, if you're following me, then what I'm saying is in this new dark ages in which we're living in, we've raised this materialism uh, because material can be quantified. Anything that's made out of stuff, quanta, can be quantified. So... Everything inside the box of time and space is quanta, quantifiable. But what if something exists outside the box of time and space and isn't quantifiable? Then as Houston Smith put it, we may mistake an absence of evidence for evidence of absence. In other words, we can't quantify uh, God or uh, the soul So therefore, they must not exist. And what what a mystic like Houston Smith would, a philosopher like Houston Smith would say, is, is the fault that there is nothing there, or is it that the tool you're trying to use to explore it and discover it is too limited to do that? And and to you know just elaborate on this for a moment, uh, and you can tell I get very excited about this topic. If we say okay, it's not in the box. God is outside the box, pre-exists creation in a Judeo-Christian-Islamic sense, right? Pre-exist. This is the creation. God's outside it, pre-existed and then makes it. Everything science can quantify is inside the time of the realm of time and space, God transcends it. Now we're in the realm and philosophy of ontology. What is the nature of existence? And we're positing something metaphysical, something beyond the physical universe of time and space.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, let's just switch from one realm of philosophy to another. So moving from ontology, the nature of existence, to epistemology, How do we know what we know, right? The study of knowledge, Mm -hmm. epistemology. Now, everything becomes metaphysical if we're dealing with the world of values or aesthetics or morals that, um, let me give you an example. If we walk into an art gallery Uh, and we're looking, or if I panned this computer around, you could see various images on the wall. We could say, how many paintings are in this room? We can quantify that by counting, one, two, three, four, and maybe there's 18 paintings in the room. Now, let's move from issues of quanta to issues of qualia, quality. Which painting is the best one? science is useless. It gets no traction on that kind of epistemic question. Mm-hmm. It cannot quantify which painting is the best. Mm-hmm. So I'm just giving you one, uh, one example of a limit of uh, science. So the danger is if we, if we raise one method of knowing, the scientific method, to an ideology, an absolute ideology, where whatever can't be quantified uh, doesn't exist, where love can't be quantified, beauty can't be quantified. What is interesting about objects is also relative. Um, I I hope you see what I'm saying, that uh, I'm giving you a roundabout elaborate way of saying this is why in the academy today, we don't find a lot of clear philosophical discussion around issues of mystical experience, for example, religious experience in general, because uh, there's a fear of going back to a previous dogma that tried to create crib death for science. Oh, you're going back into woo woo and woolly mindedness like all the religions and uh, Actually, they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Whole, whole branches of philosophy are being thrown out yeah. during this colonization of the humanities by
0: strict materialism and scient- scientism. And, and yet, on the outside of the academy, so we got this paradoxical situation that um, I would say we're in a dark ages, both in and out for different maybe different reasons, but outside of the academy, we see as much spiritual thirst and novel experience and extraordinary experience than we've ever seen. And so there's this, there's something in the culture, the higher academic, uh, but not just academic, you can certainly see this in in the medical and clinical world, exclusion of these experiences, exclusion of subjectivity, or an invalidation of it, and yet people are as hungry and creative as they've ever been. You put your
1: you put your finger right on it. Uh, because we, in the academy, have invalidated certain aspects of what it means to be human, it doesn't mean that those aspects went away. Right, right. <laughs> they're still there, so they're going to float up. And when they float up, um, people are going to talk about them and people are going to want to share ideas and um, they're gonna recognize other people that have, have other kinds of expertise besides quantification. And they're gonna be drawn to those people, uh, artists, musicians. I mean, imagine if we couldn't go to a, to a music concert until science had quantified uh, what the aesthetic experience of music is. All the music halls would be closed. Mm -hmm. Imagine if if my wife and I, uh, luckily we have a wonderful marriage, but imagine if we couldn't go to a marriage counselor until science had quantified exactly what love is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just as you say, human beings are looking for growth, however they define it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so we will go to therapists and we will go to priests and we'll go to mystics and we'll go to artists, we'll go to musicians to look for these other aspects of what we are to be fed if the academy is providing no nourishment. So you're seeing a lot of institutes come up. I mean, we had in our country, Esalen was really the first of these institutes. Uh, institutes exploring what the mainstream academy didn't want to talk about but you know now there are dozens of them i mean then there was omega and esalen and uh, other places but now there's myriad places i mean people's local community uh people are gathering to talk about these
0: issues so uh in Western Europe more than here, but generally speaking, we see a decline of institutional religion. And at the same time, this other, this hunger. Um, What does that, I mean, it seems like there you have a kind of a validation of Huxley's embrace of mysticism and a sort of antipathy to religion and saying that they're not identical and one isn't the, the institutional doesn't exist to lead to the mystical and so on and so forth but what what, what is unique about now uh, what is what is different about a spiritually inquisitive, uh, person in the 21st century, what, what is, where do they stand that's different than say the 18th century or even earlier?
1: That's a great question. That's a great question. Uh, I think Huxley was completely right that people would increasingly place a premium on personal experience and, um, that's part of why places like Esalen and Omega appeal to uh, seekers today that um, I'm going to go here. I'm going to listen to people that have a certain kind of expertise, but it's understood that I'll make up my own mind about what works for me. So there's co-learning that goes on, but there's also a premium placed on my personal experience, your personal experience that, um, I want to grow as a person. What's going to help me do that. What are some yardsticks I can learn for helping me measure whether I'm getting somewhere. And when I talk about growth, uh, I'm basically placing the entire human race in the position of needing therapy, right. Mm. That, uh, Freud said, we're all crazy. Some are just crazier than others. (laughs) And uh, and Maslow felt very much like his psychology wasn't going to be about making uh, quote unquote uh, crazy people sane, but making sane people much more sane. So that's a form of therapy, right? We can think of all growth as therapy. And uh, as we grow, then how do we measure that growth? We measure it inside ourselves. Are we growing? Uh, so it's very experiential. And, um, and I find that very exciting and I'll, I'll tell you why. Human beings tend to be uh, certainty craving animals that they want to just know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when they know, we tend to be a lazy species We tend to, I mean, our computers, the one we're using right now is a good reflection of what we are. And what I mean by that is we, uh, right now, if we don't use our computers for very long, they'll go back to sleep and they'll bank their energy. We do the same thing. Mm -hmm. We want to bank our energy in case an emergency is on the horizon. So we look at the world, we respond to the world, but we're always looking for the easiest way to do everything. And we're looking for patterns so we can follow patterns so we can go back to sleep. Mm. We're lazy. Mm. And so when we have certainty and certainty can be uh, a particular religion, that uh, not everybody in a religion, there are very deep seekers in every religious tradition, but there are also a lot of people who just want to know what to think. And once they know what to think and they have something to believe in fully, then they can get very sleepy about that and simply repeat the patterns, repeat the patterns, repeat the patterns. That may work for some people. Houston Smith, Uh, not necessarily for that reason, was a great champion of religion, all religions. Mm -hmm. But uh, what we're seeing today, answering your question, is that people are increasingly wanting to make up their own mind. They're increasingly wanting to be in a co-learner milieu, and they're increasingly want to use themselves as the measure of whether they're growing or not. So it's experience-based religion. And they're not looking necessarily for certainty. Uh, a lot of seekers today are actually finding more truth and meaning in uncertainty, mm-hmm. in the wisdom of insecurity, and in the wisdom of saying, I'm going to keep uh, shaking the snow globe. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. not going to settle into one retra- uh, retraction. I'm going to keep all the balls in play to mix metaphors. And, uh, and quite frankly, in my own life, I find the, the teachers and scholars I'm most attracted to are the ones who are most convictionally impaired when it comes to nailing it down, mm-hmm. who are embracing the mystery
0: mm-hmm.
1: that, uh, you know, it's kind of like if, if you go into a cave and you, you light a match you have some light and you can see the cave a bit. Okay, if you have a big spotlight, you can see more, but you might also see how big the cave actually is. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when you're using philosophical exploration, not necessarily to nail down certainty, but keeping open to the fact that the mystery just might keep getting bigger. Mm -hmm. You know, we're seeing a lot of that in today's spirituality.
0: Yeah, it's very much the, um, the waters I swim in in my work and in that kind of recovery community. I guess, um, in what, in the, you know, it, it feels to me in a way, it's almost like now we can see that not only was, you know, William James a brilliant thinker, but he was also something of a prophet um, because here we are. But the one thing that you know that's that great about
1: William James is he wasn't willing to throw out the questions that didn't have easy answers, mm, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and he was also willing to stake his reputation on chasing them, which you know is pretty remarkable. Um, but you know, a lot of my my research is uh, I'm in dialogue with these thinkers with names like Bruce Alexander, or recently Bruce Rogers Vaughn, and they're speaking to certain kinds of psychological. Um, and emotional uh, maladies that show up because of increasing atomization and, and rupture of the social fabric. So it's becoming harder for human beings to connect. And then you can look at that cutting both ways in this sort of spiritual melu in that it's one thing if you and I and 20 other people, most of them strangers go to Omega, and sit for a weekend. It's quite another thing if I never do that, and I am looking for answers um, by myself or with one of these devices. And so, you know, I feel like religious people could, or there's a way to push back and say, "Where's, where's the community? Where's the sangha? Where's the fellowship?" Um, What would you say to that?
1: Exactly right. I mean, I agree with that. Uh, Houston Smith would agree with that in spades. I mean, Houston Smith, uh, you know, Huxley's, uh, Aldous Huxley's IQ is estimated at over 200. And he had an encyclopedic memory, an extraordinary memory uh, maybe a person like that can go it alone all the time and find their way up the mountain of growth, but not everyone can. I I remember once I was in City Lights Books in San Francisco having a conversation with a fellow named Phil Cousineau, and uh, he was one of the biographers of Joseph Campbell, and we were talking about this exact point, because Houston, uh, who was a friend of Phil's too, uh, Houston always said... Religion has lots of functions, and one of them is to create community and community identity, and mm-hmm. that's very, very valuable, community support. And Phil's comment, which I never would have, will, will forget, was that um, maybe Janis Joplin would have lived a much longer life if she had had a community. Again, we were in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. If she had had a community to rely on, in Mm -hmm. tough times. And I think that's exactly right. And I think that's something that religion gives that is so, so very valuable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But can there be a community of seekers? Can there be a community of people who are co-exploring and uh, are holding their ideas more gently and are willing to keep opening up and... uh, I think the answer to that also has to be yes. And I think you're in one of those communities from your description that uh, people in therapy are very used to talking with each other, sharing ideas. Uh, And a lot of times if it's dependence therapy, then uh, substance dependence therapy, then there's a lot of willingness to understand I've got to open to something beyond myself. Mm -hmm. uh so so i do think it's possible to create community now how can we do that i think uh, in this new dark ages that i'm talking about i'm optimistic because i you know unstable periods of any civilization uh people pessimists see it as an age of loss of civilization and a crumbling away but um Maybe it's rebirth, maybe it's a chance for new growth in a healthier direction. You know, when a house is being remodeled, somebody might stop by and say, are you fixing or destroying this property? <laughs> and, uh, and in the remodeling process, you know, there's
0: uh, some growing pains. Sounds like working with an editor. <laughs> oh, you've done that, I see. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Yeah, so I would imagine, though, what, what in your idle moments you imagine that community to look like, that you're seeing uh, shoots of that kind of community emerging, but yet there still hasn't been a robust realization of that community. Is that fair? I think that is fair. I think that is fair. Um,
1: and just as you say, there's a tendency to go into online chat groups and uh, stick with your little posse Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or, uh, you know, as people aren't finding everything they need in the academy on the level of the humanities, artist collectives are coming up and Mm -hmm. uh, and spiritual collectives are coming up, et cetera, et cetera. Music collectives are coming up. Uh, So when will these groups start talking with each other? Will they? I don't think they necessarily have to create a new monolith, if you know what I mean. Sure. Uh, I don't think they necessarily have to do that, but there has to be, or, or I said should be, uh, more communication between them, more willingness perhaps to, uh, well, this is what our little exploratory group has found. What is yours found? I mean, it's kind of, uh, do you see what I mean? Just, oh, I, do. Uh, I do. Yeah, and I mean, also- if you're turning up, you know, we're, we're reinventing the wheel maybe if we don't talk with each other. And uh, and so speaking across these different groups, I think is something we're going to see happen more and more and more. I mean, you, you're already finding certain uh, online magazines and and things that want to be a clearinghouse for lots of ideas, even in uh, maybe an example of that is uh, the the journal Tricycle. Mm-hmm. And uh, why it just popped into my mind is uh, they're so wonderfully open-minded and looking across the various Buddhist traditions, and even of challenging the Buddhist traditions, which is very open-minded, and so. Will more and more of that happen uh, across the various uh, explorations into the unknown territory? I think it will. I we hope. can
0: only hope. Um, there are two other questions I'd like to ask before we close. Um, <clears throat> and one is Are you acquainted with the uh, podcast called Weird Studies? <laughs> no. It's I very sure, good. I tell. It's really good. It's very good. And uh, there's a guy. One of the co-hosts is a guy named J.F. Martell, who is a filmmaker. And um, they did a show about. I think it's a Netflix documentary that was done on Osho, the Bhagwan. And they were. it was a great discussion, but one of the things is JF got his back up a little bit when the subject of spiritual and not religious came up. And what he said about that is he appreciated a lot of it, yada, 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 but he believed that it led to a kind of dilettantishness and that for him things became properly religious, and he's saying this in a very specialized way became properly religious when you were hooked by something meaning that something touched you in such a way that not only could you not leave it alone it could not it would not leave you alone and he he, i think he even likened it to being in a marriage meaning you're in for the long haul you have your grievances and there are things in the marriage that would probably never be resolved and yet you're hooked. The commitment is there. And I was very, very moved by that because, you know, for the following week, I'm wearing the, the glasses of that and looking at the world around me, and I'm like, hooked, not hooked, hooked, <laughs> dilettante. <laughs> um, and I'm just wondering what you think of that.
1: Well, so- um, I totally agree that dilettantism can be a danger, can be a danger that you think you're understanding something, you're not understanding it at all. I remember in A Fish Called Wanda, when Jamie Lee Curtis says to Kevin Klein, oh, and by the way, every man for himself is not the essence of Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> so he had some kind of dilettante understanding of Buddhism that he kept pitching to her as its essence. Uh, so dilettantism is a danger. But, uh, and I also agree that some of the seekers and elders in the growth process that we have today, like, uh, brother Standel Rast are geniuses of the soul and should be listened to. And they have found a very effective context in which to grow inside their Christianity, uh, Thomas Merton was an example of that phenomenon. And it happens in other religions, but it doesn't only happen in religions. And, um, you know, you you air a common uh, criticism of what people call the New Age or cafeteria style religion, that we're like little children going to a buffet and we only take what we want instead of what we need Mm -hmm. for nourishment. Mm. And that—that that is a, uh, a problem of, you know, picking, just dilettantism, picking and choosing what you like. Now, at the same time, just recently, I heard a wonderful podcast by a, a, a dear friend of mine, Mirabai Starr. Mm. And Mirabai was accused of this. Uh, somebody said, instead of digging a lot of shallow holes, they're using this analogy, Uh, exploring Buddhism a little bit, Hinduism a little bit, Christianity a lot. She knows a lot about Christian mysticism, especially. Uh, Instead of digging a lot of shallow holes, you should dig one very deep well. So stay inside of one religion. And she thought about it. In the podcast, she has a wonderful expression on her face. She thought about it very deeply, and she said, no, that's wrong. I'm using a lot of different tools to dig one very deep well, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I th- I think after what it is now forty years of concerted seeking on her part, and uh, that she's obviously gotten somewhere, uh, shows us that there's nuance in there. That not every path is the path for anyone. Yeah. some, some people aren't as equipped, perhaps, to do the Uh, exploration into lots of traditions and distillation or do they need to?
0: Yeah, Right? Yeah. Um, And the final question kind of makes me wish I read the second article has to do with the uh, this iteration of the psychedelic renaissance and the role that plays or or the way the perennial philosophy thinks about what's going on there?
1: Well, Huxley and Houston Smith, you know, just cutting right to the chase, Huxley and Houston Smith both uh, never backed down from the idea that psychedelic experience, psychedelic drugs are a very useful tool for awakening and growth. Uh, First of all, to say that they're not, is to invalidate so many traditional human religions, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we just threw the Native American church right out the window. Mm -hmm. Uh, 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 Religions on every continent that have used psychedelic as a sacrament. So that's important to recognize. Uh, Looking at contemporary studies, there's no doubt that phenomenologically speaking, People sometimes have experiences on psychedelics that in terms of key characteristics are indistinguishable from traditional accounts of mystical experiences across the tradition, specifically this, in one case, the unit of mystical experience. In other words, people do uh, often find during a deep psychedelic experience that they have this ex- uh, sense of having merged with ultimate reality or become one with the sacred and uh, and so it's become a very powerful not only in the discipline of psychology has it been proven to have therapeutic value mm-hmm. but in the discipline of religious studies, my discipline it's a very exciting area of concern, because all of a sudden, we're not only talking about mystical experience by scrutinizing, uh, in many cases, ancient literature or literature written centuries ago in a variety of languages, but if it is indistinguishable phenomenologically, psychedelic experience, mystical experience, then we can study mystical experience in real time Mm -hmm. and even uh, occasion the unit of mystical experience in the everyday citizen. So that's that possibility is very exciting,
0: and yet I notice, and I'm I'm no uh, I'm no stranger to all that, um, <laughs> for, for better or worse, frankly. But I'm noticing as really? I watch the whole thing unfold because I, I know a lot of people that are in this that wheelhouse, gotcha. um, from many different quarters. I mean, some are actually trading on the stock market. Um, Others are, they've been to Peru and that kind of thing. But what I'm noticing is that, that, uh, I'm noticing it's not nearly as bad as the sixties or at least it seems to me that there's not the same kind of reckless uh, Pollyanna-ish, this is the solution attitude. But I'm also noticing that there's this, There's this place where the dialogue between anthropology and neuroscience needs to get more sophisticated. Because when you're looking at um, ayahuasca from the lab, and then you're looking at it from the Amazon basin context, they're saying very different things, and the way the way it's playing or 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 um, the role it plays in those cultures down there are so at variance with what people are saying, you know, in these journals. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. So I'm and in the recovery world, you know, now that it's pretty much the cat's out of the bag too, that these things aren't addictive. Um, you see this kind of American, you know, just go to the iboga ceremony and it'll all be good and you don't have to, and what I'm worried about is you don't have to chop wood and carry water, <laughs> right? You don't have to really do the integrative work to really, you know, right? live it out.
1: Um, right. It's not, a, it's not a panacea. It's not like, I mean, if it was a panacea, then the 60s would have cured the world, right? We don't living in (laughs) uh, utopia right now. So it's not a panacea. Is it a tool? Yes, it is a tool. I mean, that's my opinion, right? Uh, So, you know, Ken Wilber says we not only have to wake up, we have to clean up and Mm -hmm. uh, we have to grow up. And I agree with that. And what I mean is having a breakthrough kind of experience like the unit of mystical experience is extremely valuable. Uh, I gave a podcast talk recently where I was comparing the kind of experience people come back with after they have mystical experiences in the traditional literature and in psychedelic reports. Uh, is analogous to what astronauts experience and call the overview effect that when I went into space and I could see our small planet from there all of a sudden I had a kind of god's eye view of my life and mm-hmm. I could see my little life in the context of this broader view and very often that's what comes back from mystical experience okay but when you get back how do you get along with your mother? right (laughs) like there's other kinds of work to do in the world of growing Mm -hmm. and so we also have to clean up our act we also have to grow up in certain kinds of ways and admit when ego has come into play like oh I've had this grand view and now my ego metastasizes to it and I think I'm just the great Dana Sawyer let me tell you about it (laughs) <laughs> exactly for only ten dollars. <laughs> so, so you know, grow up uh, is is important as wake up, and uh, and with psychedelics, even just segueing away for a moment, I want to hear your comment on that. Uh, that this is why I prefer the the term that Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond came up with, psychedelic they invented that term mm-hmm. and I like it because it means mind opening
0: mm-hmm. and
1: why I like it is when the mind opens then in psychedelic experience, it's not always this breakthrough into the united mystical experience, a variety of experiences occur. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what I'm trying to say is it doesn't necessarily uh what am I trying to say? If I take a telescope, I can look at stars, but the stars aren't in the telescope.
0: Yeah. God isn't in the pill. No, I, that's exactly right.
1: You see what I'm saying? So the, yes. the, the, the pill may trigger an experience. And uh, and so entheogen doesn't work as a, as a term for me as well, because to say entheogen that it's going to reveal God or the sacred, well, I wanna say, well, it might, it might not. Yeah. And, and so it's just saying, uh, it's leaving that open, that the psychedelic is saying the mind opens, but it can open in various directions.
0: No, I really like that. And that's pretty um, laser and pretty uh, sophisticated because I can be in a redwood forest at sunrise, and be thinking about the New England Patriots, right? Perfect, perfect. Um, perfect. And so the the real question about what is this internal state going into this thing? And I think that's where the deep questioning really, really is. Um, I think you're exactly right. Now saying that, you know, people
1: do very often go into the forest, right? Yosemite or wherever, Maine woods to trigger these kinds of experiences and oneness with nature and, and reality. And, you know, uh, W.T. Stace talked about this concept of causal indifference. Uh, people will say, well, you know, I can't take a pill and have a mystical experience. Well, anybody that has had one on a pill would uh, differ with that view. So um, the, th- You know, okay, Jacob Bohm, the great German mystic, he claimed that he saw all reality and changed his whole life one day by seeing the sun reflected in a pewter bowl. should i go out and buy thousands of pewter bowls and distribute them downtown (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think most people would say walking in the woods was a more effective trigger for them than looking into a pewter bowl right so not all triggers work for all people but what's quite remarkable if we look at research coming out of johns hopkins and nyu right now uh tony boses work at nyu for instance is that psychedelics do quite reliably trigger this breakthrough unit of mystical experience. Right. So it's not the only tool, it doesn't work for everybody, it's not a panacea, no. but it has its place.
0: That's yeah, it and there's two things that come up when you say that. So one is that causal indifference. I don't think Burma had any sense that that was going to happen that day. So that, that one, that was a lightning bolt. Um, and yet, you one is left wondering, is there something in his internal disposition that made him pre-susceptible to something like that? Um, exactly, yeah. The other right. thing is- Some people you, have
1: a talent for noetic experience. That's right. They have a talent for it, like people have a talent for music.
0: Yeah. And then the other thing is, um, I, can't, I won't mention his name, but you and I have a mutual friend who uh, recently was part of some of those experiments. And uh, one of his experiences were, was beatific, really. And, I don't, what, and yet the other one was very, very dark. And that to me is another thing that really, because um, I've had both of those as well, that that's something that I think you can't caution people enough because you know if you want to speak like a Jungian. The the boundary between ordinary ego consciousness and the unconsciousness is going to get very very thin, and we don't know. We have no control over what, who, or what is showing up um, at that point. So, Absolutely, I mean you know going all the way back to uh, the
1: Harvard psychedelic project. You were talking with Don Ladin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leary and Alpert, and that whole group. Houston Smith, by the way, was part of that same project. Uh, set and setting, right from the beginning. You need a guide who knows how to guide. You need a good sitter. You need to be in a good mental space. Um, you need to be good at allowing and surrendering. Um, a lot of times, people in psychedelic experience uh, report what they call egos, ego transcendence or ego death. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, the
1: ego doesn't want to die, baby. It doesn't want to die. And and so when it feels like it's going to lose control or not rule the server, then it can panic. And if the person doesn't have the ability to realize they're not only the ego, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: then, then that can feel like losing everything.
0: Right. That one can cultivate a perspective that actually includes the ego as opposed That's to right. you've got I know, you know the Marsh Chapel thing, uh, I just you know we're going on now, but the Marsh Chapel thing, the set and setting was fantastic. And then I only recently learned that they had Howard Thurman preaching. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you really want to knock these people out of the stadium. <laughs> and he no did, yeah, and he did, and he did. <laughs>
1: you know, here's a fun t- tidbit about that day, just really quickly. Um, several times Leary talked about that day and what that day was like. All reports are that Leary wasn't there at all. That, he was actually exactly like
0: trickster Timothy
1: Leary. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I mean, it's perfect for his personality. Uh, Houston Smith said, no, he wasn't there at all that day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Too funny. Well, Dana, I really, really appreciate this. And I'm sure our audience will too. Um, If people want to know more about you or your work, where can they find you? Uh, I have a website. I don't go to it
1: very often. I don't update it very often, but it's there and it's got my contact info if they want to email me or something like that uh
0: danasawyer.com
1: uh it's d sawyer dot m-e-c-a dot e-d-u so mm-hmm. i'm an I'm emeritus so i kept my college uh you know email address uh and that all this huxley biography that i wrote which is you know, for a guy that wrote thousands and thousands and thousands of pages is less than 200 pages. And it's basically uh, start here, go anywhere in terms of my own thinking, because quite frankly, I'm a a Huxleyan in almost all ways. Some modifications came in with Houston Smith, but mostly uh, his view is my view. So hopefully I've described it correctly in there.
0: I have not read it, but I have read this, people. and um, So that's I, the expanded version. <laughs> well, it was great. And um, not only was it a great authorized biography of Houston Smith, but it takes you through the 20th century. So much of the currents that we are talking about in this conversation, you know, this man lived them. Um, Absolutely. I mean, and... What was it? Vedanta. It was Vedanta, Vedanta. Sufism, Methodism, uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Late in life, he became deeply involved with these things in a way that um, it certainly was not a outside-in academic perspective.
1: He it was really one of the founders of the, uh, you know, uh, the the idea that you would you would walk a mile in somebody's shoes or their sandals or whatever, that uh, participant observer model of studying religion. If I want to know what Zen Buddhist meditation is about, I'm going to meditate.
0: Right. And so
1: he did uh, a 10-year apprenticeship with a Hindu Swami, a 10-year apprenticeship with D.T. Suzuki in Zen Buddhism, much more than a 10-year apprenticeship of the Dalai Lama, uh, then with a Sufi, uh, Islamic Sufi and on and on. And he grew up in a missionary family, as you, you know, you mentioned Methodism in China. So he had a very deep understanding of many religions and could look across them with real facility. And his, as you say, the 20th century was his playground. I mean, uh, one, one time, the Christian Science Monitor referred to him as religion's rock star. He was uh, <laughs> just this amazing personality. So if you read the biography of Houston Smith, you're basically reading a history of uh, Western philosophy and its interest in religion and spirituality for the entire 20th century.
0: Well, and there's a real, um, you really capture a real generosity of spirit and um, So I think he, I'm sure he was happy with the book.
1: He was, and I, you know, uh, when I wrote the biography of Huxley, Huxley had already passed away. Mm. Okay, I learned something with the Houston Smith biography, and that is the danger of writing a biography of a living person. Ah. As you finish iterations of the manuscript, they'll say, that's not how it happened. (laughs) And then I would say, well, I've got you on tape saying that's not what happened. So I mean it, it was much more of a challenge in a lot of ways, but then when you reach the goal, even more satisfying because then they, you know, can put their seal of approval or whatever.
0: Well, Dana, thank you so, so much. And I, um, I hope we do it again. Me too,
1: Piers. And, uh, thank you so, so much for what you do. Uh, I, I told you before we started talking, I listened to a couple of your recent podcasts and, uh, such a valuable uh, ministry, if you will, you know. Such a a valuable platform to to create a clearinghouse for lots of interesting ideas. And it's so
0: much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so All much. All the best, my friend. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.